I don't know if you've ever endeavored to climb up a climbing wall like this. Um, it's pretty daunting, especially if you've never done it before, and you stand at the bottom of that wall, and you look up at this enormous wall, and it just seems like, well, that's not possible. I, there's no way I can do that. But what makes all the difference in the world are those handholds. And you learn that they become your best friends. And your whole vision shifts from the whole wall to where's the next handhold? Where can I put my foot? And where can I put my hand? And you like the really big ones because then you can stand there for a little bit and sort of rest and get your breath before you go on further. We are in the middle of a sermon series called Unshakable. And it struck me this week because the sermon series is all about the promise, some of the promises God has given us in Scripture that help us as our life is shaking to feel secure. And it struck me that those promises of God are like handholds on a, on a climbing wall. That wall may seem impossible, and right now life for some of us seems impossible. I can't get up it. It's too, it's too steep. But the promises of God, those handholds, make all the difference. Because there are things God has said in Scripture that are His promises, His guarantees, His commitments to us. And we can hold on to them. And they either help us keep climbing and moving forward with our life, or they help us rest, get our breath, so that we can keep climbing. And yes, we all would like the wall to just go away. But that's not what God has promised. Since the beginning, His people have had to work through life and face life's challenges. But what He has promised is that He would be there and He would provide these handholds, these promises of what He will do for us. And we can hold on to those. And so in the midst of that, we come to another promise of God. And I will tell you, as I thought about this, I think it's the most important promise we're going to look at in the whole series. I would go so far as to say it's the most important promise in Scripture. We'll see if you agree with me. That's an, uh, a subjective opinion call, so you don't have to agree. But that's where I would come out on this one. To start talking about this promise, I want to come back to our physical bodies and that dreaded diagnosis of a terminal illness. I don't know if that's ever happened to you and anyone close to you in your life. It's the fear of all of us. You go to the doctor for that normal doctor visit. You may be feeling fine. This is just a checkup or something you think is minor. And the doctor walks in and says, something showed up on your tests. Didn't expect it. And, of course, we're there. How can this be? I'm feeling fine. <clears throat> but the doctor says, well, that's what we found. And the most dreaded news would be that there is no known cure. I'm sorry. The marker is there. The illness is there. At some point, it will kick in. And when it kicks in, you'll have about six months to live. If you've ever experienced that anywhere in your life, you know how it changes your whole perspective. Instantly, in that one conversation, your whole perspective on life has changed. What matters? What's really important? 
relationships, friends, family, what you want to do, not do, everything changes in that moment. Well, that is a physical ailment I'm speaking of, some physical disease. But what I need to share with you today is we are all suffering from a terminal illness. It's called sin. And that is a reality that Scripture is very clear on. And to talk about it is just as unsettling as it is to have that conversation in that doctor's office about a physical illness. And as I was thinking about preparing this sermon and preaching this sermon and working through it today, I realized this isn't a feel-good sermon, not now. It may come later, hold on. But to sit and talk about our sin is not something we want to do. It doesn't feel good. But you see, we need to know. We need to know. If that's the ailment, if, if, if we have that terminal diagnosis, we need to know to see what, what can be done about it. The simplest statement Paul makes as he has lived as a Jew with the law, as he has lived with a Christian, as he has lived in Israel in God's land, and as he's traveled around the Mediterranean world doing missionary work, he arrives at one conclusion, all have sinned. All have sinned. That includes each one of us. That includes everyone watching this service online. We're all, all. That means every one of us has this illness called sin. Earlier in that same chapter, Paul went further to say, there is no one who always does right. Not one single person. That too is a hard truth. And if you're like me, we play a little game with that, don't we? That all is sin part. Because to comfort ourselves, because we don't like to think of ourselves as that sin person, it's pretty easy to find somebody worse than us. You ever play that game? And the news is full of people worse than us right now. And the internet and our devices and Facebook and Instagram, you name, it's easy to find somebody worse and say, well, they clearly have a sin problem. But in doing that, we're playing a little game with ourselves. I'm not so bad. Maybe I'm okay. I mean, I go to church, I, I, I watch the service online, I, I, I have a Bible and I know where it's at, maybe I open it every day, maybe I pray a lot. We look for something that says, maybe I'm okay. But that brings us down to what John says. If we claim to be without sin, we are deceiving ourselves, we're lying to ourselves, John says. And the truth is not in us because the truth is there is no one who does right all the time. No one. We all sin. We may say less or more and feel good that we do less, but the reality is we're all sinners. 
We've all done wrong. We've all disobeyed God at some point. We've adopted our own rules and said, well, I'm going to do it this way. I know what God says, but I'm going to do it this way, or this is okay for me. We've had our selfish moments. We've harmed others. We've failed to do good when we knew we should do it. All of that puts us in that category. We're all sinners. The problem with sin is it's terminal. Paul says the wages of sin is death. What I earn, what I deserve, my paycheck, by sinning is death. You see, sin cuts us off from God. A verse that we haven't read as often is in Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities, your sins, have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. That's the death part. God is totally righteous. He is good. Sin has no place around him because he's so opposite from sin. But the problem is when we sin, that puts us in that category that God wants nothing to do with us. We're sinners. It separates us. He hides his face from us. I just want a little aside there. Notice what Jesus says on the cross when he has taken on the sins of the world on himself. Notice what he says on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The picture is why have you turned your back on me? Because Isaiah 59 says God can't look at sin. And he had to turn away from his own son when he took on the sins of the world. That's what sin does to us. You've probably seen this diagram. It's been around for decades. Sin separates us from God. It creates this gulf, this chasm, where God is over there and we're over here. That's what sin does to us. That's what these scriptures say. The problem is we can't fix it. We try. We try to build bridges across the chasm by doing good works. We, we realize somewhere I'm, I'm separated from God. There's something between us. And so we got into this problem because of doing it our own selves, and we keep trying to fix it doing it our own selves. If we do enough good works, maybe that'll do it. If we pray enough, if we put enough in the offering plate, if we, if we whatever, maybe I can somehow bridge that gap. I can earn my way back. But we can't. Because the gulf is so great, nothing we can do can bridge that gap. And Paul had learned that. Paul had grown up with the law, Judaism, enough sacrifices, enough obedience, somehow I can earn my way back. And he realized it doesn't work. We in our human power can't build a bridge big enough, long enough, to get back to God. Now, I think we need to face a little bit of honesty today 
And that is, we are living right now in a culture, not just COVID has nothing to do with this. It's been going on for 10 or 20 years. But a culture that says, I want God to be the way I want God to be. And so we sort of create our own God. And one of the things people want in God right now is God wouldn't send anybody to hell. God is this loving God who doesn't care about sin, who doesn't care. And so it, it's going to be okay. It doesn't matter. If you think I'm making that up, just think of the last time you went to a funeral when everybody didn't say, well, we're all going to see each other in heaven. It doesn't matter how we've lived. It doesn't matter how close or far we are from God. Everybody says, hey, it's all going to be, we're all going to be in heaven together. It doesn't matter. The problem is that doesn't mesh with the reality of Scripture. And I would go so far as to say it doesn't mesh with how we want God to be. Now, if you say, well, but I do want him. No, well, think about it. Do you want God to be fair? And I think most would say, well, yeah, I really want God to be fair. Do we want God to be just? Well, yeah, I do. But wait a minute. If we want God to be just and fair then there have to be consequences with our choices. And those choices that we make matter. And we need to hear that. The consequences of sin are real. Now the interesting thing, and you've probably never thought about it that way, that makes a problem for God. I don't know if you've ever thought about God having problems, but he did. Because part of our image of God is accurate. <clears throat> God is a loving God. And he doesn't want to lose any of his children. He doesn't want any of his children on the other side of that chasm. But the chasm is real and God can't just pretend it's not. He is a God of reality and truth. And he says that chasm is real. I am just. And I can't ignore what these people have done. Because then I would be an unfair God, an unjust God. I would not be righteous. And so what does he do for this problem, this impossible problem, unsolvable problem? Well, his solution can be summarized in one word. Jesus. That he would ask his own son to come to earth, to leave heaven, as Philippians 2 says, to give up all of the privileges and rights of being the son of God in heaven and leave all that to come to earth and become a human. And not just some royal, powerful human, a lowly servant. That was God's solution. Peter says it this way, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might be able to die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, <clears throat> you've been healed. You see, Jesus becomes that bridge over the chasm. The, the chasm we couldn't build a bridge big enough for. <clears throat> 
And if you read more of Romans, and it's sort of Paul's theology, the book of Romans, Paul actually goes to realize, because he grew up with the law and sacrifice and doing good to build that bridge, and when he realized it didn't work, he went through sort of a crisis about, wait a minute, what was God doing? And he finally realizes that what God was doing was showing us we couldn't build our own bridge. Our best efforts weren't good enough, that we were without hope. Until God came to earth as Jesus and built the bridge for us. And he did that by dying on the cross. Peter quotes the prophecy of Isaiah. We use this at Christmas. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was placed on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. We're all sinners. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. On the cross, Christ cashed our paychecks. The wage of sin is death. And so suddenly, there's a miracle cure. I talked about each of us having a terminal illness, and we do, and it's called sin. And there was no solution. Not that healed, not that worked, till Christ died on the cross. And that brings us to the promise of God that I wanted to look at today. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is God's promise. You can hold on to that. If we are in Christ Jesus, we are no longer condemned. And when we face judgment, we know in advance the verdict of God, not condemned. Not because of our lives and the good works we've done, but because of what Jesus did. And he paid for our sins. We sang it in several of the songs Carrie picked early in the service. It's a tar term, title we use for Jesus frequently, Redeemer. He has redeemed us. The word that is actually used in the New Testament is a, a, a Roman court legal kind of term. And it's a term for someone who is imprisoned because of something they've done and that debt, that what they owe is paid and they are then redeemed. People would say, do you want to redeem this person? And you would have a length of the charges, a list of the charges. And when that debt was paid by someone, that debt was stamped by the Roman court redeemed. We all have a long list of sins. And we like to say, well, my list is shorter than some others. You know, when you're in prison, it really doesn't matter whose list is longer. We're all sinners. 
But the great good news is that Christ is willing to redeem your sin. He is willing to take your list and apply His blood to it and write redeemed in red at the bottom of your list. And if we ask Him to do that for us, we no longer face condemnation. Our debt is paid. Terminal illness is healed. And judgment is no longer something we need to fear. Not because we're not a sinner, but because Jesus is our Redeemer. He was willing to leave heaven and die on a cross to pay for your sins. My sins. And now it's up for us, up to us, to accept his offer. And that's what Jesus has done. Imagine you have the worst illness imaginable, that terminal illness, and you find out there is a solution, a cure. Would you want to take it? I think most of us would say, where, where do I go? Who do I call? How can I get there? Well, that's what Jesus has done for us, all of us. He has died on the cross and is willing to be our Redeemer. We have to choose His offer. We have to say, Jesus, I want you as my Savior. To take that decision to accept Christ, to, to stand in front of others and say, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus, I have asked Him to be my Savior. I admit that I'm a sinner and I can't build a bridge of good works enough to get back in good standing with God. But Jesus died for my sins and I want his blood. That's why the, the symbolism of baptism to me is so powerful. As we become a Christian that we are buried in that water, we are washed from head to foot. It's not that that water is, is mystical in any way. It is a symbol of the blood of Christ. And that blood of Christ washes us from head to foot. All the sin is gone. If we ask Jesus to be our Savior, to redeem us, to use His blood to pay for our sin. I ask you each to think about, have you taken that cure? Is Jesus as your Savior? If you're watching online, have you claimed Christ as your Savior? The cure is there. We just need to claim it. To be redeemed. To know that as God has promised, there is no longer any condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God says, I promise, I guarantee you, that is true. We hold on to that for our lives. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your love that is so great for us. That you were willing to ask Jesus to leave heaven and come to earth and to sacrifice your only son. And Jesus, for your suffering for us, that you would pay our penalty so we don't have to. We only can stand in amazement with our heads bowed in shame for our sin. And yet our hands raised in thanks that you were willing to die for us. For that promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for that promise we thank you. And as we prepare to remember your sacrifice through communion, may we use this song and this time of communion to rest in that promise and understand the gift, the life-giving gift you have given us in your death for us. We thank you. In your name.